Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Well, it's 2021, and a fresh new start that leaves all the trouble of the past year behind us. And I'm going to keep telling myself that until it's true, regardless of how exciting the past fortnight has been. At the very least, it's a fresh new start for the Terry Talks Fiction podcast. And so, with no further ado, and no dwelling on reality instead of fiction, (laughs) we're going to dive straight into this first episode of the new year. Today we'll be talking about my top 5 movies that got me through 2020. As I said in one of the previous Best Of podcasts, I'm really more of a series watcher than a movie watcher these days. But there are some times, and especially last year, when you just want to be swept away for a couple of hours and forget everything except the spectacle and the story that you've got in front of you. And like the other entries in my Best Of 2020 lists, Not all of these movies were new in 2020. The pandemic was an obvious contributor to that, I mean, not a whole lot of movies were being released in cinemas last year, but also, these lists are intended to be more of what personally got me through the year, rather than what is fresh and new and exciting in 2020. And if I mention something here that you haven't seen, or haven't seen in a while, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it in the Discord server or over social media, and especially if you have a piece of fiction in any form that really grabbed you in 2020. I'd love to feature it in the Listener's Picks podcast coming up in a few weeks' time. Book, TV series, movies, or video game, any fiction is fair game. But now, let's start this list off with a movie that's almost getting a little long in the tooth now, it's certainly been done more than once by reviewers around the world, but which still caught me up in its unrelenting joy and optimism amidst the darkness. And that movie is 2018's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now, although I wanted to highlight this because it was probably the most rewatched movie that I hit in 2020, I honestly don't really know where to begin. I mean, what is there to say about Miles Morales' big screen debut that hasn't already been said over the past two years? It's a movie that's got gorgeous art style and direction, inspired use of the comic book formula on film, and creative exploration of the possibilities of an iterative multiverse. Add to that an unexpectedly poignant narrative about growing up, I'd say coming of age, but Peter B. Parker's not exempt from this point. And you have every part of the formula that keeps Spider-Man as relevant today as he was in the 60s. And I think what kept me coming back for those multiple re-watches of this movie during 2020 was the simple optimism that lies at the heart of the film, and at the heart of any story worth its salt that bears the Spider-Man logo, whichever universe or medium it's set in. As a character, Miles is fascinating in his humanity, much like the Peter Parkers we've come to know and love over multiple comic series and movie adaptations over the years. Miles is a kid, both as simple and as complex as that statement suggests, and watching him struggle with the weight of the responsibilities placed on him, and seeing him match those with this relentless drive to do better and to be better, is frankly inspiring every time I watch it. 
And over those multiple watches, I found myself gravitating towards the excellence of the other characters as well. As a mid-30s overweight dude that left his steady-paying career to go off and be a writer, I feel sometimes that I do have an awful lot in common with where Peter B. Parker is with his life at the start of this film. And as a father, seeing the way he interacts with Miles over the course of the movie really tugs the right places in my heartstrings. The humour of the movie is superb, always knowing the right place to lean on the seriousness of the scene and the right place to cut that tension with a giggle or a full-on laugh. Kingpin's brutality mixed with his emotional brokenness is fantastic as a villain, and the constant flipping of expectations, thanks to the power of multiverse storytelling, keeps the same old reused elements we've seen in every other Spider-Man from feeling stale. Things like Dr. Octopus being in the movie, or the fate of Spider-Man's uncle taking front and centre. Having Gwen Stacy there and Aunt May, it's all handled so creatively, and it breathes fresh life into this ever-rebooting movie series. And I love, particularly with the various iterations of Spider-Man across the multiverse coming together in this, are also uniquely different, but connected by the same emotional core throughout. Each one of them is defined by their inherent need to do the right thing and to be better and to believe that about themselves, that they will always find a way. I love that message as much as I did the first time I watched it. And after the sheer number of times I've seen this movie, that's no mean feat. But now we're going to skip from a universally beloved and critically acclaimed movie to another animated film that doesn't quite have the same reputation, but which holds a very special place in my kids' hearts, and after the 11 millionth time I've sat through it with an entranced two-year-old on my lap, I have to admit is a movie with much more to it than initially meets the eye. And that movie is DreamWorks 2012 box office bomb, Rise of the Guardians. Ever since I read Terry Pratchett's Hogfather back in, God, I think it was 2001, I've been fascinated with magic systems or world building that incorporates the power of belief as a tangible, affecting force in the world. Rise of the Guardians, a story that centres around a very reworked-for-Hollywood portrayal of the mythical Jack Frost, excels in bringing a new approach to that concept. Even if for some reason, the bad guys always find that the Tooth Fairy is the linchpin on what all childhood beliefs lie. Must be a capitalism thing. If you've just heard how badly the movie did in cinemas and have decided to miss it, or if it's been a while since you've seen it, allow me to sell it to you with these broad beats of the tale. After his creation as a supernatural entity sometime in what appears to be the 1700s, Jack Frost has spent the last few hundred years living on the fringes of belief. Enough people know about him and invoke his name for him to exist, but nobody really believes in him, the same way as they believe in, say, Santa Claus, or the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy, as being actual, tangible people, instead of being just stories. Without the power of that belief, Jack is sort of cursed to wander the earth in extreme loneliness, 
able to use his powers over frost and the wind to affect the world, but unable to be seen or felt by anyone. Anyone, that is, except for his fellow supernatural entities, the most powerful of which have banded together into a group called the Guardians, who are each responsible for one aspect of children's belief, like hope, or wonder, or fun. And of course, there are other beliefs too, like fear and terror, and although modern comfort and technology has mostly eradicated humanity's primal fear of the dark, when the movie opens, the Boogeyman, as the avatar of that primal fear, finds that he is ready to make one last great push to control the hearts and minds of humanity. The sheer level of creativity in the world-building of this setting and story, from the magical technology of Santa and the Tooth Fairy to the more primal magic of Sandman and Jack Frost, is really top-notch, and the pretty unique approach to the famous supernatural characters is inventive and fun. I mean, who's ever seen a tattered-up Russian Father Christmas before, with massive tattoos of naughty and nice on each forearm? More importantly, the weight of the narrative is frankly superb, placing just enough focus on the characters and the boogeyman's plot for it to be easily understood by kids, but nuanced enough to remain interesting to adults. And the climax and conclusion are pretty thrilling too. I honestly feel myself getting excited for Jack as he completes his character journey, and the sadness behind his creation is something which is likely to be more keenly felt by adults than it is by children. Although I might have started out watching this movie because my kids were excited to see Santa and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy all in one movie, it's truly revealed itself as a hidden gem and is definitely worth a watch for, appropriately, the power of the wonder that is soaked into every part of its well-crafted narrative. But now, moving on from an almost decade-old movie, we're going to come to the only one on this list which was actually released in 2020, albeit released direct-to-streaming services, given the circumstances. And that movie is Pixar's Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic the Gathering-inspired modern fantasy romp, Onward. Now, this might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but I have to confess that I am a massive nerd. I'm just going to speak into the space here while you're shocked into silence. So there's a lot in this animated adventure that I personally am just coded to love. The constant fantasy gaming references, the fantastical creatures, seeing my five-year-old daughter's favourite obsession, unicorns, represented as the worst possible result of a chimeric breeding of raccoons and pigeons, was utterly delightful. And the modern era setting is something I almost always love seeing. <clears throat> no, I haven't seen Bright. But I really enjoy when you've got fantasy doing something different. Like centaurs who have got too lazy to run and are now driving cars. Or a struggling apprentice wizard cackling at the power of a technological firelighter, meaning that he didn't have to worry about muffing up his spell. Seeing pixies on motorbikes and an epic quest with an ancient map that ends people up at a construction site, it's an absolute melting pot of pastiche and homage, and it pulls all of that off really well. 
But like any Pixar movie, the core of the story is, of course, its characters. And it's here that I felt the movie does something really clever. Playing within the rules of traditional fantasy storytelling, and playing so far within those rules, it's almost like seeing a straight adaptation of the hero's journey on screen. The narrative leans really heavily on those tropes of the genre throughout whether it's playing them straight or inverting them, and although it makes some parts of the movie, including the climax, really fairly predictable, the aplomb with which it's executed regardless is incredible. The central story of these two brothers travelling together on an epic quest to bring their deceased father back to life for just one day really hit home with me on so many levels all of the ones I've mentioned for nerd culture, but also as a man with a younger brother myself. The cresting narrative was so poignant and took such great advantage of the expected path of the formula that, even though I sort of knew what was probably going to happen at the end, the way the movie constantly reinforced the expected tropes and the expected narrative pathway meant that it was able to make me forget that I knew where the story was going and still be really gut-punched by the emotion of the final few scenes. And although the similarities between, say, Barley and Star-Lord's backstories made me a little concerned for Chris Pratt's IRL parents, the restraint of the stakes and the high emotional core of the story was so perfectly played out that it had actual tears in my eyes when that emotional punch was delivered. And like the other movies on this list that really hit home for me in 2020, there's an undercurrent of relentless optimism, particularly from older brother Barley, that really lifts the entire experience and makes the movie something that's wholly inspiring. Honestly, there's not much that Pixar does that's not excellent, so I do highly recommend this movie to anyone who hasn't seen it, because it's for kids. Moving away from animation just for a brief moment, the next movie I want to talk about might get me accused of a theme here, actually, given that it's another Spider-Man slash Marvel slash Disney movie But I've got to be honest with you, 2020 was absolutely the year of Disney Plus in our household. And so I want to highlight the final instalment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Phase 3 of movies, and that is Spider-Man Far From Home. Now, I was completely blown away when Spider-Man Homecoming came out and Tom Holland was given his own room to move away and really occupy the space of Spider-Man following his introduction in Captain America's movie, Civil War. I felt that he perfectly encapsulated the mission statement behind this version of Peter Parker, as this wide-eyed kid who wants so desperately to live up to the expectations placed on him by his powers and his mentor in Tony Stark. And so I was cautiously optimistic to see how, after the events of the Infinity Saga and Stark's death, the character was going to stand on his own, 
without that mentor to rely on and falling back into the more traditional Spider-Man role of a boy struggling with his powers and the responsibility that comes with that. And although the lack of Tony Stark as a physical presence in this movie did give the movie a bit of a sense of that, what we've come to consider traditional Spider-Man movie storytelling, again, I was blown away. In a lot of ways, this is a much sillier and more slapstick version of Spider-Man than we've seen before in the MCU. Certainly, the whole scene on the bus in the European mountainside when Peter accidentally calls a drone strike on a classmate is something that wouldn't have seemed out of place at all in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man series. And while that would normally really grate on me from a narrative standpoint, this movie is one of the rare moments where that brand of Spider-Man comedy really suits well. The heaviness of the themes across the rest of the movie, with Peter struggling to come to terms with his survivor's guilt and the pressure to step up as the next Iron Man is really great and exactly the sort of exploration of Spider-Man that I was hoping to see after he'd been set up as this character by the previous movies of the MCU. And because this is a movie and it's a visual medium as much as it is a storytelling experience, the acting of the cast in this really sells both sides of this movie, the silliness and the heaviness. Jake Gyllenhaal makes a wonderful Mysterio with perfectly balanced cunning and crazy, and his utter manipulation of Peter throughout the film is delicious to watch. He reminds me so much of people that I've run into in everyday life that are just manipulative little shits who will smile so welcoming to you as they slide the knife into your belly when you're not watching. Plus, on top of that, Zendaya's MJ is incredible. I love this version of the character and the snark and the foil that she makes to Peter's almost wide-eyed naivete with her just jaded exterior that's completely hiding that little vulnerable core that she's got going there, which we glimpse a few times in this movie and we hadn't seen previously. And of course, Sam Jackson's multi-layered acting as Nick Fury in this movie was so good that the first time I saw the movie, I got really concerned that he was just phoning in his performance until the after credit scenes ran and everything sort of settled back into place. But mostly, though, what gets to me about this film is, again, the Spider-Man optimism buried at its centre. No matter what gets thrown at Peter in this movie, and there is a lot that gets thrown emotionally at this character in this movie, the message is continually reinforced that even though individual heroes might come and go, heroism never does. And it makes a wonderful passing of the baton from the jaded genius of Tony to this more hopeful vision of the MCU's future. And speaking of passing batons and the way that things change as characters come and go, the last movie that I want to highlight that got me and the family through 2020 was 
yet another Disney offering, Frozen 2. I'll be honest, when I first saw this movie, I didn't think it held a candle to the first. But as it, again, has basically burned its image onto the screens of our home over the past year, while the kids have been at home from school and not going out to parks and just sitting at home, I've come to really appreciate the nuance in Frozen 2's storytelling. Although the first movie might have been far more in-your-face about its themes, and as a result, filled with more powerful musical numbers, its sequel has thematically matured along with its characters. There is a lot going on in the quiet moments of this film, more than ever did in the scorching power ballads of the first, which really suits this film, since the themes it explores are quieter, but more meaningful too. The feelings of disillusionment and the weight of past sins mixing with responsibility and moral imperative and loneliness and death and birth, there's a ton of heavy lifting in this narrative, and it's all pulled off pretty well. It's also really nice to see character development, which is actual character development across movies. While the two sisters remain pretty much as we knew them in Frozen 1, there are certain elements of their characters that have noticeably changed between the movies. This isn't the sort of traditional art-style upgrade or changed haircut that animated movies might sometimes have between instalments without really accounting for the actions of the past. Here it's really interesting to see how the relationship between each of the characters has matured. And although there are a few throwbacks to the way the characters were in Frozen 1 when the emotional stakes get high, as one would realistically expect, the characters do lean on what they've learned through both of the movies to reach their climax and the resolution of their emotional arcs in this one. Plus, the Atahalan lullaby that plays over the title credits at the start and is a theme throughout is absolutely haunting, and I can never hear that enough times in the background while I'm trying to write in the other room. But I've talked for quite a while there, so how about you? Did any of the movies on this list make your watch list over the year that was? And if they did, did they hit you as hard as they hit me, or did you have a different take on them? I'd love to hear your thoughts on these movies or on any of the ones that made your 2020 more bearable. What got you through? Let me know either by emailing terrytalksfiction at gmail.com or stop by the Discord server, Facebook page or Twitter account, or which you can find linked on the Terry Talks Fiction website. Next week, we'll be looking at one last other aspect of digital storytelling that helped me cope with the year we've just exited. Video games. Until then, I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to talking again soon.